HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and today we are broadcasting from Charlotte, North Carolina, with some of the city's greatest culinary talent. We're really, really stoked to be here, and uh, I owe some big thanks today to Charlotte's Got a Lot, who is bringing us today's coverage. And uh, I'm also very happy to be here with my loyal co-host, Kat Johnson. Hey, Kat. Hi, Katie. And uh, it is a beautiful Thursday. We're not doing happy hour today because we're in Charlotte, but we're pretty happy to be here uh, sharing some cold drinks with these awesome people that we're sitting with. So I'm going to start some introductions. We're going to go around the table to my right. So I'm going to start with Chris Reed, who is the executive director of the Piedmont Culinary Grilled. Welcome, Chris. So can you tell us very briefly, what is the Culinary Guild all about and how did you get to be running this organization? Um, so Piedmont Culinary Guild is a nonprofit based here in Charlotte and we connect chefs, farmers, artisan purveyors, craft beverage people, anyone interested in preserving the flavors of the Piedmont and working with local farms. Um, I started in Charlotte uh, 14 years ago, moved here from Los Angeles actually, and um, I worked as an executive chef. I had a catering business and kind of came up into the local food community uh, via those roles. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're going to dive into a lot more detail about your work in a little bit. Cool. Um, And we're going to continue our introductions. Next up, we have Bruce Moffat, who is one of the culinary OGs of Charlotte of Moffat Restaurant Group. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, what what exactly is an OG? The original gangsters. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I had it confused with the old guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're mutually exclusive. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Got it. Um, so tell us about how you came to be in Charlotte. And you have is it five restaurants now? Uh, yeah, we're kind of working on the fifth. Okay. Um, well, I had a son here. Uh, and so I was working in Boston at the time, and I wanted to be a little bit more part of his life. Um, so I came down to apply for jobs and was handing out resumes. And the first restaurant I worked into, the lady that owned it said, hey, I'm trying to sell it. Do you want to buy it? So uh, I went back to Boston and uh, 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 changed my mind about 20 times. And then finally said, you know what? You live once. You owe yourself a few risks in life. So I threw Broke up with my fiance, threw everything I owned on a moving truck, and uh, came to Charlotte and opened a restaurant. And that was uh, almost 19 years ago. And now I've kind of parlayed that into, well, four more restaurants. So it's the city's been really good to me. Wow. Uh, so just threw everything to the wind, basically. Yeah, maxed out the credit cards, had my mom tell me I was insane, the whole nine yards. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, all, all the variables at oh, the yeah. same time. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, well, very courageous, and it's, it seems well, it to have turned out, out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I had a great restaurant career and uh, a great relationship with my son, so awesome. it really worked out. Uh, well, that's great to hear. We're going to talk more about your restaurants and your culinary trajectory. Uh, we turn now to Ashley Boyd, who has been a guest recently on HRN on tour. Uh, welcome back, Ashley. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so tell us about how you came to be in Charlotte and um, your background um, kind of transferring from pastry into uh, the broader culinary world. 
Well, I'm the only one at this table, I believe, who was born and raised here in Charlotte. Um, there aren't a lot of us. If you ask anyone who lives here, um, a lot of transplants. So, um, so I, was, I was born and raised here. Um, grew up in the restaurant where I'm currently working. Um, so it's a family business. Um, I moved away to go to school in fine arts. It was my area of study. Um, and immediately went back into restaurant work as soon as I graduated. Um, so I moved around a little bit, uh, working different hotels and restaurants um, in different cities. And I got the call one day that my mom needed a GM. So moved back home. And actually the first place that I ate um, the first night I got back to Charlotte was Barrington's, one of Bruce's restaurants. <laughs> uh, that was in 2001, I believe. Um, so I um, have held a lot of roles in the restaurant. Um, I had and primarily a pastry chef. Um, so was able to get us some recognition um, for our dessert program and um, have now, you know, turned my attention to the culinary presence that we have um, and, you know, hoping to, hoping to get the same kind of recognition and, and be a part of the scene here in Charlotte on that front as well. Awesome. And our fourth guest is Greg Collier of Uptown Yoke. He's looking very uh, trepidatious taking over the microphone now, but we know he's not shy about being on radio. You've joined us before as well. Um, so welcome back and uh, tell us what you're working on and how you came to be here. Um, thank y'all for having us. Um, so I'm from Memphis, went to culinary school in Phoenix, Arizona, and we moved, my wife and I moved here to Rock Hill in 2012 because I kind of felt like Charlotte had, um, there weren't a lot of Barrington's or Tim Grudy's um, early on. Now, um, we have a lot of different chefs doing a lot of different things, but I felt like I could be a part of a movement and not just go to a place like Charleston or Chicago or um, New York where it was kind of, where it seemed cutthroat. So we moved here in 2012 and in the opening a breakfast, brunch restaurant in Rock Hill. Had that for seven years and moved that up to Uptown Obviously, to be in Charlotte, just kind of be around all the dope stuff going on up here. So, and now we're having fun. So, speaking of the dope stuff going on in Charlotte, um, how have you guys seen Charlotte changing? So, for those of you who are transplants, um, what was it like when you got here? And then, what have you seen changing? And what are you excited about that's developing? And anyone can jump on this. When did you come, Greg? 2012. Okay, so I got here in 2006. Yeah. Um, so I would say when I first, well, and I also moved to Gaston County, the culinary epicenter that is Gaston County. Um, tell, tell us more about that. To this day. Um, well, uh, being from Los Angeles, you know, you're used to a lot of fresh vegetables and a lot of fresh fish. Um, and what we discovered was uh, a fried culture. Um, and so even wanting to eat sort of healthy and go out for fish, we found these fish camps and we're like, oh, cool, fish camps. We'll be able to have fish. Not a thing, right? So um, what is that, the fish camps? Well, and culturally, they're really cool. I mean, if you want fried fish and you want slaw and you want like if you want that, that's great. But like if you want like, you know, grilled fish and fresh vegetables, it's not really it's not going to be your jam. So. It was it's a not, big adjustment. It's not your LA fish tacos. It's not your LA fish tacos for sure. <laughs> there not, were no. It's not a fish chateau. It's there, a fish there is no fish chateau. Yeah. So so it took so it took a while to find the the fresh food, you know. And um, at that time, there was not a lot of continuity in the farmers markets. There's actually still not, to be honest. Um, there's more than there was, and there's also more there's also more farmers markets than there were, um, and a lot more attention towards the local piece, which makes the food a little bit more accessible. But at that time, there there really wasn't that. Um, opportunity. There was no Whole Foods. There was no Trader Joe's, um, and there was and there was the Yorkmont Farmers Market, pretty much um, at that time. So access was pretty limited, and restaurants in the Gaston area were uh, chains and fish camps. Yeah, I got here in 2000, and I remember leaving Boston. All my uh, friends were making fun of me that all I would be able to serve is well done steak and salmon, and. Uh, uh, I came down, I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to see, see what they'll go for. But uh, I remember getting my first food in order, food order in, and just hitting the panic button. Uh, my scallops were frozen. Uh, the salmon I got in looked like it had been thrown off a building. Uh, the tomatoes, all the vegetables I got in looked like they'd been imported from uh, California and picked a month before they were supposed to ripen. 
and uh, I just started to panic about what I had done and what what I got myself into and uh, about a couple weeks into it um, I ran into some other chefs that had been working here in Charlotte and uh, they kind of embraced me told me to take a deep breath and pointed me towards the uh, farmers markets and so uh, once I got to the farmers markets and they told me who to work with, um, I started to see the pr product that I was familiar with from Boston, uh, you know, what, and, and new products like okra and sweet potatoes that I hadn't worked with much. So that was kind of exciting to be able to utilize different things and uh, and see that they had just been pulled out of the ground and how fresh they were. And you know, over the years, I've managed to work with my seafood purveyors to try and get. Uh, better product in and then we've also found farmers that are bringing in uh, you know wonderful whole hogs or chickens or whatever it is so I've really seen that community evolve from like my full-on panic mode when I first got here. Yeah. Ashley do you did you find there were similar challenges in sourcing or did you find that being a Charlotte native that you sort of knew where to look from the beginning and how much has sourcing changed for you in the last say 10 years? Um, I, I had the privilege growing up in the restaurant of um, having some great role models um, in my mother who not only, you know, owned and managed the restaurant um, growing up, but also was in the kitchen quite a bit. Um, we had a chef back then, um, Joni Babcock, who just to this day, I don't know if I've personally worked with someone who had as much of a palette as she did um, so she was always doing things that I really connected with even as you know a, a kid um, so I had some great role models and she you know she was she was diligent in her sourcing um, she bought from local farmers way back then um, and sort of I feel sort of gave me a direction when I came back to work at 300 East um, as far as where we would take it um, but you know what I have seen, um, even though I feel there have always been, you know, options in the Charlotte area for sourcing, I've just seen an explosion of the variety of product that we're able to, you know, have at our fingertips all the time. So many young people going into farming, or at least it seems that way from where I stand and just, you know, trying everything. So the options have exploded and it's awesome. That's really cool to hear, and especially like in New York and around the country, we're kind of facing farmers really aging out, and it's really, really hard to attract young people mm -hmm. into agriculture. Um, so do you think that's something that's different in this region, that young people are actually finding success at farming? I don't know if it's different in this region, because I, you know, this is, this is where I stand, and this is my you know, perspective, mm -hmm. um, but I see a lot of young people with the interest. Um, I know that the national trend may not be the same, but I think that is something unique that we have here in this area, is that we have a lot of people who have either moved here to farm or, you know, grew up, you know, thinking that's what they want to do. So, and are looking at it in a new way, not like I came from this and this is what my family has done, but like, mm -hmm. let's, let's do this differently and make it work. Yeah. Um, and Chris, you do so much work in connecting farmers to chefs. Can you talk more about the specific work of the Piedmont Culinary Guild and sort of what you've seen as far as building access to fresh products and local products? Sure. So, I mean, obviously it takes influencers, you know, Greg, Ashley, Bruce. It takes the people that are doing food right to direct people on how to do food, period. So um, the guild is not even possible without leadership, and we have a tremendous amount of support in the community um, from chef leaders. And we also have a lot of chef or farmer support on the farmer leadership side. So I feel like it's a really, it's been a beautiful marriage between the two. I think one of the biggest challenges at this point though is, you know, as we're struggling on the labor side, not to jump to a different topic, but you know, as we are starting to see this labor situation um, change within our industry, it does put a lot of pressure on the chefs that have always had that um, desire and held that as a value um, to source locally because the, the cost of the food is so much more expensive. And how do we parlay and pass that on to the consumer? How do we educate the consumer on why this is all important? So um, 
PCG at this point, uh, while it's still a hub, um, I almost feel like it, it is more of an activation center. We need to be activating people to understand like what is really truly at risk here when we're not supporting local growers and we're not featuring these things on the menus, how we're all interconnected and very dependent on our farm base um, and supporting that. So, Can you talk a little bit about how if a chef is working very individually to build relationships with farmers, how that looks differently from a chef participating in the guild and being able to utilize those connections and how does it benefit them? So I would say that the chef members that are, and, and, and I invite the chefs here to talk about this because they all are members, but, you know, I think that when we started the Guild originally, the primary pillar was to share resources. You know, how do we share the labor resource? How do we share the purveyor resource? And how do we create a connecting piece that's affordable for a nonprofit to run and so we've we've landed on a Facebook platform so we have a Facebook private group that actually shares resources there and so somebody who's not within the guild doesn't have access say to that Facebook group page where you have a farmer that's saying hey I have I mean I remember last year I can't remember I think it was um is it Noel uh Noel um with strawberries last year she had like, I think, 28 gallons of strawberries she had to move and they were like turning. And she went on the page and she's like, I need to move these strawberries like right now. And they were gone within, you know, five or 10 minutes. And so that's the, that's the tool. Um, and it's a different tool than what commercial chefs are used to because they're used to um, their ordering system through their broadliner. So it, it, it has, you have to shift the focus on how you actually are sourcing food. But I think that that's, that would be the difference. People that are within the guild actually have the access to the farmers directly and the farmers have direct access to the chefs. Do they use it all the time? They're all so damn busy that doesn't always work out that way, but, but it's there. But it's there. Yeah. Absolutely. So <clears throat> I'll say this. What's interesting about um, the PCG specifically is when I first moved down, I was in Rock Hill and um, I'm a Patriots fan, so I kind of always do this, this – uh, bulletin board material type thing. So I had convinced myself that people in Charlotte or chefs in Charlotte felt like I couldn't cook um, or felt like I wasn't, I didn't have a skill set or whatever. I had convinced myself of that. So I'm down there in 2012 kind of doing my thing. I think the first time we had, a, there was another group that tried to be what Piedmont Culinary Guild is and was even then. It didn't work out. So I went to that meeting and it sucked. I think maybe a month later, somebody was like, don't worry there's a real group coming that you should come to a meeting. And this is after y'all had the five, the meeting with the five, you and the other five chefs. So I get to this meeting, there's 30 chefs in this meeting, and I'm talking to these chefs, and they're like, yo, how are you doing what you're doing at Rock Hill? And I'm like, what are y'all talking about? I was like, yo, how are you doing this, and how are you sourcing this and using this product and all this stuff? And I just, it, I was lucky that in Rock Hill, such a country town, people were just bringing stuff out of the restaurant because they just – my auntie grows tomatoes. Here's 25 pounds of tomatoes. Give me whatever for it. So I just had the luck of being in the country town and networking. But coming to that first PCG meeting and meeting those chefs, I figured out that there were people who actually did that professionally. So I wouldn't have to worry about actually getting in trouble. Like people who actually farmed and has been farming. And I met people instead of having just like beefsteak tomatoes, they had five or six different varieties of heirlooms and different types of corn and all that stuff. And I, I was able to network with chefs and the chefs – which is super dope, and I don't really see this in a lot of other cities. And I think Piedmont Culinary Guild is kind of the start of that. I could ask a chef for his source. And not only would they give me the source or share the source with me, they would take me to meet the farmer. They would bring the farmer to the restaurant and say, yo, this is this guy in Rock Hill doing something. He needs this. Um, trying to figure out something. Like I might shoot, hit Ashley up and say, yo, I'm trying to do this biscuit or this cake or whatever. How? And she'll shoot me a recipe. So it's, it's really huge that... PCG connects the dots, but it's not just connecting chefs with farmers, it's connecting chefs with chefs, it's connecting artisans with farmers, and it's kind of taking the whole system and make it not just connected, but easy for us to all get to each other. But, but also, like, going back to that, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that, honestly, because I, I agree with you when I go back to, when I go back to home, home to LA, people talk about Charlotte now, you know, and it's when we think about sharing resources like that so openly, it isn't something that happens broadly because it's such a competitive environment. And so PCG has created the connection, but we've built, the, we've built a culture within the organization that I think has, has grown out into the community. Wh whether you're a member or not, I feel like it's part of our community now, which is really a beautiful thing. 
How do you identify chefs that you want to bring into the guild or do they come to you? So Piedmont Culinary Guild is by invitation only. And so we get a lot of shit over that, like that we're too exclusive and, you know, but um, we're really looking for the best of the best and the people that are doing the right thing by food. And in order to keep and preserve that, we make, we make sure that we do that by having Ashley invite somebody. She invited Lainey in. You know, having our members um, invite their leadership in or leaders that they know in the community that are doing great things into um, our fold. So it's by invitation only. And I wanted to ask you, Chris, what what does it take to run the Piedmont Culinary Guild? Like what goes into it on the back end? We're a nonprofit, too. So we're always like, you know, how do you pull together the resources and what actually needs to happen for this to exist? I try not to cry right now answering this. When she figures it out, she'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it started out like Greg said, you know, we started out with like 30 chefs and farmers in a room trying to figure out what is it going to take to build a sustainable local food shed. You know, and how can we be the voices for that food shed? And so it was about sharing resources, educating, and um, and creating regional recognition, which is the third pillar. You know, and trying to really drive attention to the innovation of the chefs and the farmers in this area. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that at this point what it takes is it takes an engaged community of members and that's the hardest thing because they're being pulled in a thousand different directions and so i'm kind of in a you know we're we don't ha- we don't have a brick and mortar we don't have any staff you know we have a webmaster i have an admin assistant this isn't my full-time job because i can't make money doing it so i have a bunch of other gigs right so you know what it, what it takes is just the support of these people at the table right now it takes the support of all the members not just from the standpoint of showing up and doing the work for the guild it's showing up every day and doing the work in their restaurants um, or on their farms or or what what have you it's the it's the boots on the ground doing the work and it's um, and it's also the friendship that they all provide and support um, me as I've been on this journey um, because obviously without that there's no way that I would still be standing I know that sounds crazy, but it is a lot. It's a lot to run a nonprofit, and we're not grant-based. I was, I, I was kind of like, you know, fuck that. I, I don't ever want to go down that road because I don't want to be beholden to somebody that gives us the money. It has to be membership-driven, and it has to be funded by the community. And as soon as the membership doesn't want to do that, it ceases to exist because I don't have founder syndrome. It's like you don't need it. The goal of the nonprofit is to go out of business. The goal of the nonprofit is to, like, meet your mission. You know, the mission for us is to connect the local food chain. So, like, if it comes to a point that the people aren't engaged in the the community then we have we have met the mission and we go out of business you're like problem solved problem right? solved and now everyone's we connected food. we fixed food yeah. that's amazing Yay. <laughs> Yay. so you know but i think that i think at this point that what it takes is people to just stay at the table and, and be engaged in it because we're not going to win the food fight um, without armies of people working together like step by step you know it it can't be everyone's own effort it washes the topsoil of everything you build as a community you you have to work together Um, whether you're in Charlotte or you're in you know Miami or you're in New York or you're wherever you are the community has to band together because we're just that fragile at this point that it's really necessary yeah I just wanted to add when I moved to Charlotte I really felt so isolated. I was, you know, a small 40-seat restaurant. I was in my kitchen six days a week. Uh, I didn't have the chance to go out and meet people. I barely had the chance to go out and find the farmer's markets. And it's kind of see the evolution of the Piedmont Culinary Guild. It just streamlines my life. It makes my life so much easier. Um, you know, if I'm curious where I can get lamb, there's a centralized location. I can go to ask the question. If I'm curious, you know, to where I can go find different products or... You know, if I have an event that I want a local chef to work with me on or whatever it is, it's just kind of at my fingertips now. Whereas when I first started, it was, you you know, we were all kind of every man for himself and feeling like we're competing for the same 200 customers. And now I feel like us working together has kind of elevated the food scene here. Yeah, I believe that before the Guild coalesced, we were less of a community in Charlotte. Like there were, there were pockets of, of people who were, um, who were doing great food. And after the guild, you know, started meeting and, and became an organization, our, we have a community, you know, it was, it was dramatic. Um, so, you know, it, it was really, it was really great to all of a sudden have a network of chefs and, 
farmers at our fingertips and, you know, to really share what we're all doing together and and artisans and craft beverage people. I mean, look at the depth of the of our arena now. I mean, you didn't have craft beverage people. There was no beer like there was no breweries. What was the brewery here in 2006? Somebody tell me. Old Mac was it? Were they on the ground in 06? I don't think so. I mean, there was nothing in terms of craft beverage. So it's not just the chefs and the farmers. It is the artisans and it is the craft beverage people. It's the entire, it's the entire setting of the table, right? And it's really looking at it as a foodscape, not a food scene in that way, you know? So I think we're at the point now where, like, there's this community and people coming into the guild maybe don't even realize what it was like before, you know? It's, it's a little taken for granted in a way. So. Greg, I think you have something to say about that. <laughs> So, um, so like when I came in, in my mind, it was like Mark Jackson, Tim Grudy, Bruce Moffitt. As far as chefs go, and I think that's kind of, I mean, I may be missing a couple, but, um, and I see, I didn't know him. So, so when I came, I'm looking from Arizona and I'm like, bro, they got like 12 steakhouses in Uptown. I'm like, I can't, I don't want to work for a steakhouse. So, like, what am I going to do? So, I look at Bruce's restaurant. I look at Mark Jackson at uh, Halcyon. I look at those places, and I'm like, wow, some, some, something's happening. I just don't know what it is. Then, to Ashley's point, once the PCG starts, like, I think the conversation is always there about, yo, we should do something. There, there should be some things that happen. Change needs to take place. Um, but once that starts, then now – not five chefs are having a conversation. Now it's 15. Now it's 30. Now it's 50. So now we're not just having conversations at meetings. We're having conversations on Facebook. We're having conversations over text messages. We're all saying, hey, I think my farmer, this farmer is selling this thing for this much. Is there any way we can have a conversation with the other farmers so we can kind of bridge the gap so everybody understands what they need to be doing? So, like for me, I'm selling breakfast. It's super easy for me to go get a case of eggs from U.S. Foods for 15 bucks. Super easy. We'll make my margins way better. I just don't even feel comfortable doing it. I think we're at a place now in the community where buying local food isn't a thing to do. Like, if you're not doing local, if you're not sourcing responsibly, like, I don't even, not to say that we're the cool kids, but it's like, I don't even know, I don't even know those chefs. Like, I don't, I don't, because I'm like, I'm having conversations when I'm like, yo, man, I'm getting this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Like, oh, man, I'm getting mine from da-da-da for 50 cents a pound. I'm like, bro, you okay with that? Like, you feel comfortable putting that on your menu and selling that, and it's not even a skill set versus skill set thing. It's just like now you have to have integrity in Charlotte from source to labor to um, all of the issues that go on in a restaurant. You have to be a certain way. And that's why I think, like, that's why I think Charlotte's so dope moving forward because, like, now the standard is set to where you have to do these things. It's not – you don't get cool points for buying local. You're supposed to buy local. You're supposed to be shopping at farmers markets, especially if you're charging, like, 35 bucks a plate. How can you not be? But a lot of those things are – I mean, they're very challenging to reach those standards, you know, and I think that the PCG, like, helps people – reach them a little easier. I don't know that we help them. We have a community of people that are helping each other, you know, because like nobody has the answer of how we fix this problem, right? Like we're in crisis as an industry right now. I mean, it's a very serious thing that's happening in this country. And I don't think that people realize that. And it's not just about food. And if like Greg was saying, like it starts to touch all these different aspects. Food is where everyone comes to the table. So socioeconomic, there's all this different, there's all these different things, environmental issues all these different things like greg was saying you know you okay with like sourcing that you understand what that does to human health you understand what that does to communities do you understand what that does to the environment like you're the person that's making that decision and driving that company to continue to succeed instead of pulling your dollars away from them you know and and diverting the dollars to companies that actually do give a shit about people and environment and community and all the rest of it you know so pcg is more than just connecting chefs and farmers at this point i mean you know what greg has done with soul food sessions and all of his team you know really bringing attention to serious issues within the foodscape around the country that's not localized to charlotte these issues are everywhere but pcg is becoming sort of a place that we can all talk about them openly and share ideas and resources 
to help elevate everyone at the same time here, you know? And I think that's a perfect segue. Um, and Greg, we've talked to you about Slow Food Sessions before, but um, I think this is a great moment to, to share that again and to talk about, you know, food is not just the literal, even, even looking at farm to table, it's not just transporting agricultural products from a farm to through a kitchen to somebody's mouth who then eats it. There are social issues beyond that. There are environmental issues. There are so many other things going on when we talk about food and food is kind of the one universal thing that we all human beings have in common. Um, so tell us again about Slow Food Sessions and uh, the sort of genesis of the idea and where you're at with the project now. So um, I think in, in in America for the most part, and I'm not going to say like every single person up or down, right? I think we're at a place to where most of us kind of feel like what we should be doing is working together. Like, I, and I, I, I don't think we, we are not ever going to agree on um, all of the ways to do that. But I think that the ethos is now we need to be figuring out how to work together to make things better for everybody. Um, and I, and I, and I, so with soul food sessions, a lot of people talk about what the issues are because they want to talk about it and they feel like talking is action. And talking isn't really action, it's just talking. Like, you can talk on Facebook, you can talk standing up, upside down, you can talk in your sleep, but it's not really action. So, with Soul Food Sessions, we saw what we felt was an issue, not because of a specific entity trying to keep um, black chefs out of anything. We just felt like that there just was a lack of diversity as far as, from, from my personal perspective. Because a lot of times we do dinners and I'm, you know, I'm the black chef in the room. Or a lot of times we do dinners and there's one female chef in the room. Nine times out of ten, it's a pastry chef. So we wanted to look at it and say, how can we positively affect diversity in the culinary industry and not just be talking about what the problem is? Um, so, and realistically, the first dinner that I was a part of, me and Mike Bowen, one of the founders, we were part of uh, Piedmont Culinary Guild Apple Dinner, which is, we were way too drunk and it was way too much fun. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the the point uh, that what I felt in that in that space was like, yo, like I'm in the room with these chefs who I've been looking at for the last year and a half or so as best chefs in the city. So the whole time I'm in there, I was super happy and super excited. But after the fact, I was like, man, it was only like two black chefs. It was no, it wasn't a female chef in there. Like the representation in that dinner by proxy just wasn't diverse. So again, with Soul Food Session, we was like, yo, we just we need to do a black chef dinner. We're gonna call it Soul Food Session because people kind of consider soul food black food. So we're gonna do that to fight the stigma. Um, and we just wanted to cook together, right? We, it, it wasn't even really about fighting the stigma, let me say that. We just wanted to cook together and be in a space where I could be in a place with my direct family, right? And just cook and enjoy ourselves. It happened around the time with the Keith Lamont Sky shooting, so a lot of people kind of felt like, oh, they're doing this as a, like a, as a, um, like a reaction protest. or yeah, like, as a protest yeah. and at first we was like that's stupid why don't we do a dinner and the protest uh police shooting that don't even make sense but what we realized later is the act of doing something that we felt like was a, a togetherness to a lot of people on the outside seemed like protest because togetherness is not the norm so once that happened we realized oh so we have a thing here like we have a we have a line and then like the beauty of the culinary community in Charlotte, next day we did at Clark Barlow's, gave us the space. Like, no questions asked. When y'all want to do it, we close on Mondays, come do it. Uh, Luca uh, Annunciata gave us the space. No questions asked, you want to do it. Um, so, we, so we started off just doing dinners, you know, in, uh, in chefs in Charlotte spaces for, for free of charge. And then, like, last year we actually got, we went on a tour with uh, Coca-Cola Consolidated. Um, so they paid for us to go to D.C., Charleston. We did a dinner here and we did a dinner in Baltimore. And what we've turned that into is mentorship and scholarship. So we make it a point, if we have a dinner and there's profit, we get that profit to um, African-American culinary students. Um, if we do a dinner, if we don't do a dinner and there's nothing going on, I make it a point to make sure I'm mentoring young black chefs. Not necessarily about, hey, this is how you bake scallops, or this is how you grill fish. Like, this is how you navigate the restaurant industry. Don't look at this situation like it's anti-you. Look at this situation like, okay, how can I use this situation to advance myself? How can I use this situation to improve myself? How can I use this situation to get to whatever the next step is for me? So being a mentor, having those conversations, like, you know, in culinary school, Bruce, you know, you're an old school chef from Boston? Yeah. So the way the culinary industry used to be was the standard. 
the conversations, the machismo in the kitchen. It was almost like I grew up like that too. And I say like I, I won't raise younger chefs like that, but it made me me. Like a hundred percent. Hearing a chef yell at me and almost wanting to fight him through the the good cooking skills that I had, right? I'm gonna cook so good that you are gonna look stupid yelling at me. Cause there's no reason for you to say this because I'm I'm flawless today. So now you come on the line and you're ready to say something, I'm using my skill set or improving my skill set just to piss you off because now you can't yell. You know what I'm saying? So like the the soul soul food session is really about what's going on in the world. And I think what's going on in America is really about being able to give a voice to people who don't necessarily have a voice. It's not about pushing other people to the side. It's not about excluding people. It's just about saying, hey, let's give everybody an opportunity to be celebrated and let's celebrate them for the things that they do great and their and their differences and not kind of tolerate their differences. Yeah. So you said something interesting, Greg. You said togetherness is not the norm. And, uh, and you're doing a lot of work. You're taking soul food sessions on the road to different cities. Um, everybody here is also influencing kind of a wider culinary arena. Um, do you feel like the sort of collaborative environment in Charlotte is spreading to other cities? Do you think that Charlotte is having an influence in that way? Because I think that this level of collaboration and mentoring and support is uh, it's starting to happen in other places, but I don't think it is the norm. And so uh, ha- what have you seen in sort of like ripple effect or um, other cities starting to take on a similar scene? I'm going uh, I'm to I'm make y'all answer all the hard questions. So, uh, For one, I, we, I don't think any of us at this table really care what's going on in other cities. <laughs> Amen. Um, and it's not because we don't appreciate what other cities do and we don't think the other cities are dope. It's just that's just not how we're living and that's just not how we're going to create our scene. We made a decision, I think, with PCG and with, you know, if I call a chef and ask a chef a question, they cannot pick up the phone. So that chef's making a, de- a decision right when they pick up the phone to give me that information that we're going to collaborate. We not, we're not going to be other cities. So... One, we don't care if it's happening in other places. And two, we're going to make sure that we do that because it's only aided. Like, everybody's better. Everybody cooks better. Everybody's sources is better. Everybody's kitchens are better. The scene is better. Like, there's, there's literally no issue with us collaborating. So, like, and I'll use Charleston. Charleston is great. Charleston is super high end. I've heard horror stories about Charleston. Chefs buying whole acres of tomatoes just so other chefs can have them. I'm just not going to do it. It just don't make sense, and I don't think anybody else is. Go ahead, Bruce. You're dying to say something. <laughs> Jump in there, buddy. What, what made you think Jump that? There, <laughs> I know you so well. Uh, um. No, I mean, uh, yeah, for the longest time being here, I always heard, oh, well, we're five years behind Atlanta, or we're 10 years behind Charleston, and I just feel like for the longest time, we apologized about our city, apologized about our city, oh, well, we're not quite there yet, oh, I guess we are, and we just started to believe it, and I think finally in the last two years, I've noticed that people are like, well, fuck you, we're a good food city, like, I don't, I don't, like, period. We're, we don't compare ourselves to Charleston. We don't compare ourselves to Atlanta. We are who we are. We're not tourist-driven. So the people that come to our restaurants are really excited about our restaurants. They're not people that have read something in a magazine, which was paid for, that are coming because there's so much hype around their chef. They're at our restaurants because they enjoy our food and they love to eat there. And they know that we're part of the community and that we're trying to raise a family like everyone else. And they come in and they want to support us to do that. And that's what I think is really cool about Charlotte is we're not apologizing for our food scene anymore. We are our food scene. Does that sort of turning point for you also um, reflect in the publication of your new book, which is out this year? I think so. I mean, I think it's kind of the, a lot of it is the history of, of kind of my experience in Charlotte and how it's evolved and uh, how I kind of um, always felt like uh, that we could push things forward. And I've always been excited when I, you know, try to push the envelope like good food. No one really understood it when I opened it. And now it's kind of, you know, a fairly popular type of restaurant. 
and Stagioni, everyone walked in looking for spaghetti and meatballs and veal parm, and we didn't have it, and they lost their minds, but now they get it, and they understand the restaurant. There was a little hand-holding meeting. Yeah, yeah, you definitely had to, you had to put out the message of what you were doing, and there was definitely a lot of uh, angry people at first, but I think, you know, we've all kind of said, okay, you know, we're not, we're not going to settle for the norm. We're going to do what we're passionate about and what we, you know, what's in our heart. And to see that people love, I don't know, I think passion is infectious. If you walk into a restaurant where everyone's passionate about what they're doing, you're going to have a good time. And so all these people I'm sitting around are passionate about what they're doing. So every time I'm around them, I have a good time. The title of the book is Bruce Moffat Cooks, A New England Chef in a New South Kitchen. Do you still feel like a New England chef? Yeah. <laughs> you can't take the New England out of the boy. I was, I was rooting for the Bruins last night. I'll admit it. Well, my question is to you, what it, in your mind, what is the New South? I'm interested in that, that term and what people think it means. Um, the New South, I feel like uh, it's kind of getting like out from under um, the kind of post-Civil War doldrums and kind of owning ourselves and saying, you know, we're not these slow kind of y'all people. Like, we're here, we're vibrant, we're pushing the food scene forward, we're using local ingredients to push that forward. You know, stuff that people took as uh, throwaway food like and made fun of, like ham hocks or collards or things like that. Um, are now kind of, they're spreading throughout the country. I mean, that's the new South. We're, you know, I think it's the same as Charlotte. We own it. Like, we're pushing all this forward. We're not stuck in our tradition, so deal with it. Yeah. Um, and Ashley, I was just curious a little bit, too, about, we, you know, we talked a little bit about your transition from focusing on pastry to now being, having a more, like, broad view of the restaurant. Um, can you talk more about that and, like, what you're currently focusing on with 300 East? So um, I, I spent, as you said, most of my career as a pastry chef um, and um, was able to really grow our dessert presence um, and my dessert presence um, in town through using our network of local growers and incorporating those ingredients into dessert. Um, and to be honest, I had produce envy a lot of the time. It was really sort of like, how come they get to use this stuff and I don't? Like there's certain things I just couldn't figure out how to incorporate into what I was doing. So um, to be in control of our sourcing from who I'm buying from, what I'm buying, and then how that gets used in the restaurant in a broader sense is super exciting. I feel like we'll be able to um, to source more, better, more local stuff, more sustainable items, um, and it's just going to make our uh, our menu so much more um, appealing, current, responsible. Um, so I'm excited. And just for the record, before Ashley, the desserts here were kind of prepackaged, purchased from Cisco, throwaway type items on everyone's menu. I mean, they weren't thought out. They were stuck in a freezer and pulled out 20 minutes before service. So she has really broken ground on the dessert culture here and people kind of identifying it as something that ends a meal and makes a meal memorable. So I really have a lot of admir admiration for that because it's it was it was well needed and all the accolades she has are well deserved. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, one thing I was thinking about, too, is as Charlotte, does, you mentioned the steakhouse, the steakhouses, and I've heard that before. And as the food scene is growing and, and being more non-apologetic, do you see that people are kind of embracing a niche? I mean, I feel like you could maybe could be considered a niche breakfast food and you were pastry and then we have the New England chef. Like, do you think that that's an important thing to think about when you're opening a restaurant in charlotte um so i i, I have one restaurant i don't have um four like bruce but and um yeah, we, we're working on stuff but um but what i what i so i kind of think the opposite um i used to feel like it made sense to find the niche find the market find your specific clientele and fight like hell not to ever lose those people but what what I think 
the food scene is doing, I think it's doing a lot of things. Um, I think we're bringing the bottom up. So steakhouses ain't going nowhere. People are always going to go to Capitol Grill because it's a big room and a big space. Everything's shiny. They still got big bottles of wine, and you can live like it's 2006 for a moment, right? You can live like pre, pre-recession, and you know what I'm saying? And if you're a banker, uh, bro, or whatever, you can go down to Capitol Grill after work and shoot back $150 shots to uh, Louis, Louis the 15th if that floats your boat. To each their own. Right. But you can take that 150 You can have breakfast at my spot dinner at Bruce's spot, and then desserts at Ashley's spot with the same $150. And I think because we've been fighting and having so many conversations about the actual value of a meal and the actual value of um, the presentation and the service, I think now that that's happening, more people are coming so you don't have to do niche. Like, Bruce, what do you have? You have, a, you have a, an Italian restaurant, uh a New England Southern restaurant, a small place restaurant, and a fine dining spot. You can do it all. Right. You could do, I think now that we've fought to show skill set, that we fought to show proper sourcing, that we fought to show comfortable service, not necessarily stuffy, catch your uh, fork as soon as you get off the table service, but comfortable service, knowledgeable service. Um, now that more people are coming to farmer's markets, they can identify some of the products that we're using in our restaurants. So now that creates a chain that makes the whole food scene more familiar. So now you can do whatever you want to. Like the food truck scene has 30 different types of food trucks and they could be at the same place at the same time and everybody can have a great day. I think that alone like allows us to do whatever we want to do. Hot wings, fried chicken, whatever. Yeah. Well, that, that brings me to, I, I want to do a little bit of a roundtable. And what are you excited about? What's developing? What's the future? Even the next, let's say, let's put it like three years. What's, what's most exciting about the next three years of Charlotte Dining? Well, look at me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have a mic. Well, um, so what I, and again, I think, like you do a great job at this. I think we're going to have a lot more neighborhood restaurants. 300 East is the prototypical neighborhood restaurant in that it fit the neighborhood that it was in when it opened. And as Ashley's taking over and doing more stuff, she's going to have it fit the neighborhood for the next five to 10 years. So I think there's going to be a resurgence of actual neighborhood restaurants where, excuse me, where you might have a space that's 2000 square feet and there's a face that's the chef, and they're going to be there five or six days. won't be Bruce, uh, but it'll be somebody like uh, Andrew Dye, somebody that came through the lineage, and he's allowed him to say, here's the space, here you go, here's your neighborhood restaurant, do your thing how you do your thing. Um, I think it's going to be a lot more smaller restaurants with 40 or 50 seats, kind of like I, I feel – I don't want to use Brooklyn because it's a whole lot to unpack with Brooklyn. It's okay. You can use it. It's a whole lot to unpack with Brooklyn. But I feel kind of Brooklyn-esque in a lot of chefs um, who've been here for 20 years are now putting out younger chefs who've been here for 10 years that are opening spaces. And I think they're going to saying, I don't want to drive all the way to Uptown to have a restaurant. I want to open a space in Mount Holly like uh, Clark Barlow. I want to open a space in uh, the Gold District like Mike Knoll. I want to open a space in Plaza Millwood like Andrew Dodd. So I think I think that in the next three years is about to really blow up a lot of neighborhood restaurants. Yeah, that's one of the things I've noticed in Charlotte is I've always been in the neighborhoods and I always thought, you know, my livelihood depended on being in the neighborhoods. And one of the things I'm excited about is I find that these larger chain restaurants, uh, you know, they get in to Charlotte and they just have this one trajectory and it's going to be this way and it's going to be this way, period. I find that um, the smaller restaurants, we can kind of get in and we're nimble enough and small enough to kind of understand our neighborhoods and we're involved enough to understand our neighborhoods and while keeping you know, our basic core values, we can kind of evolve to suit the neighborhood. And I think that a lot of these bigger, like, bigger restaurants like Emerald or Wolfgang, I mean, they just are what they are, and they move forward at that pace. And by the time they figure out there's an issue, it's too late. And so one of the things I'm excited about is that I think independent restaurants are better poised to kind of take over the city. And I think that's going to help 
everything from the farmers to the you know to the sense of community you know i find that farmers markets now are packed when they used to be empty and it's just like everyone wants to get kind of their hands dirty everyone wants to get their hands on fresh product everyone wants to you know go into those restaurants and help support the chefs that are that are kind of supporting the community and i think that's really what i'm excited about so um what excites me about the next three years in Charlotte and, you know, what I've been seeing over my time here and how our culinary scene and our, um, our diners have evolved is that, um, you know, with everyone moving to Charlotte, and I don't know the exact figures, but we've just got a huge influx of new residents every year. Um, yeah, it, you can tell. It's, it, yeah, it's a struggle. Um, the good thing about that is, um, whereas I think Bruce alluded to this for, you know, when he first moved to Charlotte and started working in restaurants, um, there was a lot of, and, and, and I felt this too, you can't do that in Charlotte. You can't do this in Charlotte. Um, you can. And in the next three years, uh, I believe that we'll be able to, you know, think more and do more in our kitchens with skill, of course, you know, with, you know, having less food waste, um, using more sustainable proteins like rabbit. I've seen a lot on people's menus and being able to put that skillfully prepared but different product on a plate and people are, are going to enjoy it and be ready for it. Um, so that's that's my big thrill. And I, and I think just going off of that, I think that really Charlotte being sort of the Queen City in the heart of the Piedmont region of the Carolinas, literally, you know, we are positioned to be a destination that people come to for unique flavor experiences. Why couldn't this be the Piedmont of Italy? Why couldn't we have that kind of attention drawn to this area? We have the tour, we have the food scene, we have the beverage scene, we have the agriculture. And for Charlotte to really be something that the rest of the country looks at and says, wow, there's a, there's a city that actually gives a shit about their farmland and all these chefs working to preserve it. And that's what I hope to see happen in Charlotte. And obviously we're supported today in part by the CRVA. Charlotte's got a lot. And um, I think it's really fascinating that they're doing so, uh, such a wide range of promotional activations and events to shine a light on the whole spectrum of Charlotte food. So um, I know a few of you have worked with them in the past. Um, what do you think about that, that work that they're doing and, and to maybe try to push Charlotte to be more of a tourist destination while still having great neighborhood restaurants? I think that their their intention is great. I think their results have been good. It's been good to see us in other cities. Um, and it's been good to see their involvement with, we just had the James Beard Foundation here um, last week. You know, it certainly is great to see the city taking note of what really is an asset here um, and what really does need to be celebrated. Because again, going back to what Greg was saying earlier, I mean, culinary is is setting the table for the entire community. It, it, it touches every single aspect of a city. Um, and so I think that it's great that they're, they're doing what they are to drive attention towards it. I, um, I think that CRVA is very intelligent and very intentional in um, making sure that they're looking at the scene as a whole from a bird's eye view and saying, okay, maybe last year we were looking a little too close. A step back a little bit and see what we're missing. Um, and they're making sure that they catch all like, yo, let's let's do let's do uh, more minority chefs. Let's make sure we have different types of restaurants. Let's make sure we have the food truck scene represented. Let's make sure we have the entire um, you know entire food scene represented. So, like when you when when you look forward, LA is probably the only city that really does that. Like promote. Um, the taco stand and the taqueria and the food truck and the guy with the hot dog stand and um, the old school restaurants that have been there like Melissa. Am I, am I tripping? Whatever. But the old school restaurants, the, the, the three Michelin stars all the way down to the mom and pops. Like L.A. is about the only city that does that. So for us to be a growing city in, um, in Charlotte and trying to be a part of the New South, I think food can drive what the New South looks like. Food can be a part of that and instead of Charlotte kind of, sorry, CRV kind of waiting around to see what we think and see what um, everybody wants us to be. They're saying, hey, yo, this is what y'all doing? Oh, we got to make sure we're telling these stories. We got to make sure everybody hears these things and hear these conversations, not just in Raleigh, but in L.A., in Chicago, in New York, in Florida. So I, I appreciate them taking the time to really be knowledgeable about, about the scene because maybe like five years ago, it was just kind of like, oh, one hot chef, let's push the hot chef because that's the thing to do. Now they're doing it smart and it's making more sense, and I think everybody feels like we're going in the right direction. 
Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, kind of piggybacking on his point, I thought it was really interesting when the um, Southern Foodway Alliance came here and did their symposium and really focused on our diversity. I mean, half the restaurants I didn't even know existed. And I just remember when I first moved here, uh, going to, getting all excited because it was a Brazilian restaurant, and going to the Brazilian restaurant and seeing that they were offering jello and uh, pasta salad and things that were so clearly not Brazilian because they felt like, yeah, no, they felt like they had to cater to the Southern palate. And now to see like, it illustrated to me when SFA came here that we have a strong Latino community, we have a strong, you know, a, a Japanese community, we have wonderful restaurants that are representative of, you know, Vietnam and all, all those different things. And I feel like, like for the first time in our history that these places can flourish and just do what they do and not have to worry about the southern palate or what people are or aren't going to eat in Charlotte. It's pretty... You know, and I th- thought that SFA did a really good job of highlighting that. Um, so all of this conversation is making me extremely hungry, and we're about to get into the worst part of that because I'm going to ask you one wrap-up question, uh, which is to share, um, I mean, as chefs, I know it's hard to get outside your own place, but what is on your sort of, if you were to go out in Charlotte right now, what's the bite that you're hankering for, or, and, and where do you want to be going? Or what's on your list to try? Don't all jump on it at once. No one wants to hurt anybody's feelings, so that's a hard question. Well, you can only pick like one, this. so there's. I know, but like no that's like answer. favoritism, and that's a really hard. Like there's there's silence because nobody wants to offend or hurt anybody else by not mentioning. See, no one's gonna. No or one's it, could, gonna it, it could also be something that's like some produce that's coming in a season that you're excited to go okay, like get grab and work with. Yeah. <laughs> So I feel like I am approaching each season with completely fresh eyes right now. Um, and that's, that's incredible. Like I've fallen in love all over again. So where spring used to be my least favorite season as a pastry chef, cause there was nothing. So I started like, no, no. I mean, I, I, I started like infusing flowers to base desserts on because like I, I was just waiting for like something, something to come in. So this, this point in time, like between spring and summer, where there's everything, I mean, my mind is blown. Um, I can't pick a favorite. I can't. So I, 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 don't, I definitely don't have a favorite um, spot, um, but I'll pick something that I'm waiting on because I never do it in the summertime. Like, my spot to go to in the wintertime is Saigon Palace. I love pho. And Bruce was talking about Vietnamese food earlier. And I think that that alone, like, people can really make the stuff that they make. And even Saigon Palace, like, Saigon Palace is like a seven-page menu. And it's like 30 things on each page. So they still have those this cannot be Vietnamese food items. Like, I don't think General So is anywhere in the Vietnam province, but they have to have it because people expect when they come to an Asian restaurant, they're going to get, you know, General So chicken. But you can go and get pho, and you can get beef knuckle in the pho, and you can get the sausages in the pho. And, like, I don't do it in the summertime because I want to make sure when it's wet and cold and rainy, I go get pho, and it's spicy, and it's hot, and I leave out of there, and I feel like, I want to almost say a soul renewal. Like, I just get to go, and I feel like I'm at a Vietnamese grandma's house, and she's feeding me this this big bowl, and I'm like, oh, that's great. So I love the spring and the summer. I love the produce. I think we've gotten so much better as far as what farmers can get in. Like, three, four years ago, it was like um, the Easter egg radish. Now you got... Mixed radishes, you got jade radishes, you got watermelon radish, you got daikon, you got so many different things as far as we talk about radish, but just for radishes, right? You got so many different options. So I'm super excited about that, but I can't wait to be able to go back to Saigon Palace in the wintertime. Yeah, mine's Musashi. It's a small Japanese restaurant kind of on the outskirts of Charlotte. And uh, pretty much whenever you go in, it's mostly Japanese clientele. And I always get really excited when I go there. And they usually send me something out, like monkfish liver. Or once they sent my son cod testicles. Like, it's it's all really sometimes challenging food. But it's it's so interesting. And it's 
so much fun to see like what a different culture is all about. But I was going to say, like, I think for the first time since I moved to Charlotte, there's about 15 places I want to try. And I could never, ever, ever say that before. So I think that's kind of cool. We went to Musashi for both my kids' birthdays this year. <laughs> so if we keep going, they'll send us cod testicles. Yeah. Okay. If you're really got to be a regular now. Yeah. <laughs> Are the monkfish liver? It's pretty good. I wonder if that was also just like they're ragging on you for being from Boston. No, no, no. no. <laughs> How about you, Chris? I'm I'm with Ashley on this. I'm I'm more about flavors that are coming out of the ground than I am about necessarily the restaurants. I patronize all of these guys and a lot of our members, so I would never call out one in particular because they're all favorites. And I I'm not saying that because I don't I'm not being like that mom, but like I am that mom. Like I love all of the members, so I would never say one is the place that I go. But um, in terms of flavors that are coming out right now. Um, you know, I do a lot of cooking at home, and so, like, nasturtiums are really big right now, and so you could do nasturtium salad with peas and garlic scapes, and, you know, there's tomatoes coming in, and this is just a really beautiful flavor profile coming from spring into summer that you only get once a year, and you only get a couple weeks of it, so it's worth getting to the market and uh, playing with food. Yeah. Uh, well, you've got me dying to get out there in this magical overlapping season where you have all of these things at the same time that we uh, have to have sequentially in New York. Uh, so we're super stoked to get out and eat some stuff tonight. Uh, but we've been so lucky to have been joined by all four of you. Thank you so much for being on. It's really, really special to have all of you in one place sitting down with us together. So thank you so much for making that happen. And uh, we hope to see you back in New York as always. So please do let us know when you want to come by for pizza. All right. Uh, I want to say thank you again to Charlotte's Got a Lot for making our coverage possible. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Thanks for tuning in.